Hello, and welcome to the first of Screen International's award season podcasts. I'm Matt Mueller, the editor of Screen International, and today we'll be taking the temperature of award season so far, which unofficially kicked off as it does every year at the Venice and Toronto Film Festivals a few weeks back. At Venice, Joker won the Golden Lion and the Best Actor Prize for Joaquin Phoenix, giving its award season profile an instant boost. The fact that the Warner Brothers title has already earned $854 million in its first four weeks of release has only added to its luster as one of the front runners at this stage. At Toronto, the all-important People's Choice Award, which in previous years has been awarded to eventual Oscar Best Picture winners, including Slumdog Millionaire, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri and Green Book went to Taika Waititi's satire Jojo Rabbit. Will that audience prize help propel the Fox Searchlight title to award season glory? Joining me today to discuss this and other burning questions are Screen International's Features Editor Charles Gant and Joint Managing Director of Picture House Cinemas and Picture House Entertainment, Claire Binns. Welcome, Claire and Charles. Hello. Hello. So to start with, let's look at the date change for this year's Oscar and BAFTA ceremonies. The uh, U.S. Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences has pulled its 2020 ceremony forward by two weeks this year to take place on February 9th. That prompted BAFTA to respond in kind, pulling its own ceremony forward to February 2nd. We've since found out that this is a one-off for now and that Ampass will return to its late February slot in 2021. But what impact has this year's date change had on the release calendar? And Claire, your own schedule in terms of programming. Well, it's always tough. Every year you're trying to shoehorn what are the biggest money makers, the most critically lauded films into a tiny period of time. And some years it's tougher than others. Last year, to be honest, there was one film that stood out. But this year there's a number of films that are going to be great for cinemas and we're going to be taking them off when they're still taking money because the next lot have to come in. So for us, uh, cinema exhibition, it's a real problem. What was the title last year? That's uh, that's the favorite. The favorite, of course. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. the favorite sort of swept everything away. Uh, and some years there are titles that do that. This year, I think there's a lot of very good titles in there that are going to make it difficult for everyone, frankly, to see all the films. And Charles, what about from a packed release calendar schedule? What, how's it looking? Well, January looks pretty busy to me because right at the beginning of January, we have Jojo Rabbit, quickly followed by 1917. Uh, we've then got kind of coming in rapid succession. We've got Waves, which is the fantastic Trey Edward Schultz movie, Just Mercy, which is a brilliant legal drama with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx. And then we've got Bombshell, the brilliant film about Fox News with Charlize Theron, Margot Robbie and Nicole Kidman. Um, we've got Dark Water, which is the Todd Haynes movie, which I have yet to see. Um, so the more on a BAFTA tip, we've got the personal history of David Copperfield, but I think that will do quite well in Claire's cinemas. Then you've got Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. You've got Queen and Slim. Um, and you've got um, the Clint Eastwood film. Now, that is all in January. And you haven't mentioned the one that... I think is going to be perhaps one of the winners is Little Women on December 26. Yeah, which you already have playing I and know, you won't and, want to be and taking off. And they won't want to take off. And so 
you've mentioned all those titles and those titles are absolutely films that could um, and deserve to be seen. But for cinemas, it is a real problem and therefore we can only open so many hours in the day. <laughs> and the other film that needs to be mentioned is Star Wars because it might not be a film that is going to scoop awards, but it is certainly going to take up screens. And the way now that everything has become polarised over the last few years, and so the polarisation is, to, and I have to say that the way films are reviewed, two stars or five stars, and also for cinemas, they more and more need to be able to show films at times that customers want to see. So they are clogging up screens. You don't just have a film in one screen. You have to be able to offer it at six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, because that's what customers want. And so where do you fit in all these great films? So it's an issue you face every year. I mean, how yeah. do you deal with it? <laughs> <laughs> you deal with it by taking off films that are still people want to see. That's how you have to. And at other times of year, you would cry out for those films and you have screens which have films in them that, that frankly, you have to keep on for weeks longer than you want to. Uh, at this time of year, you are taking off films that nobody wants to take off, but you just have to do it. And I think the other thing that we should say, uh, it certainly happened last year, There, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this, there are films that don't deserve to be in there that distributors, stars, producers, directors are insisting that need to go in that period and they shouldn't be there. But maybe some of these could move if they don't get any Golden Globe nominations and they can't... They don't move, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they really don't. And, and that's the problem, that you have the expectations that people think my film needs to be in that corridor. And uh, frankly, it doesn't. And this is a problem that's become worse and worse over recent years, isn't it? This isn't something that probably happens as much 10, 15 years ago. It's something that's really become more. I think, more it, yeah, it's, it's sharper. It's sharper. And, and uh, you know, looking at last year, and again, this is not about a film being a bad film. This is about a film that shouldn't be in that period. Should the front runner have been in that period last year? Should Beautiful Boy, should Mule? You, they're fine films in their own way, but you always knew that they were films maybe that wouldn't generate the kind of buzz that if you'd put them in another time, they may have actually done better because they would have had room to breathe. And of course, this year it's worse than ever because we have the you know the February 9th Oscar ceremony date and the February second BAFTA date. Yeah. But back next year, you'll have a bit more space to yeah, to play the, around the, with. The, it? Never <laughs> enough space, Matt. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about some of the uh, contenders in a bit more detail later on. But when it comes to dating an award season contender, I mean, we have talked a little bit about this from your perspective as a distributor. What factors play into that? Because you. I think has specifically not released your awards contenders in that busy corridor of December, January. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things about the the 
Oscar Corridor is that it tends to be studios who tend to throw an awful lot of money, uh, whether justified or not. And we all know that films, if they have a lot of money thrown at them, can sometimes get more attention than not. And we're a small distributor. We have had The Wife, which was absolutely had an Oscar nom for Glenn Close. But again, as a cinema exhibitor and a distributor, actually having a film released at the right time of year so audiences can get a chance to see it, and we released The Wife in September, which was a great time for it, and it meant it ran and ran and ran, whereas a film like that in an Oscar period in the sort of January um, bottleneck would have been, unless we'd thrown enormous amounts of money at it, it would have been very difficult to, to get audiences to come in. But but even bigger movies, I mean, I think Warner's have done very well with you know, yeah, putting Joker yeah. out in October and also Pathé Fox with Judy. Yes. I mean, Judy's what, like, at the, as, as we speak, it's, you know, pushing towards £8 million, which I think would have been a tough hill for it to climb if it had gone out, come out in January. I quite agree. Even with all of the buzz around Renee's performance. So I think if you can find that slot in the calendar... And, I mean, you know, as Black Klansman did last year, you know, that did phenomenally well by going out in late summer. Um, so there are real opportunities there, but I'm sure producers are always wondering why my movie's not opening in January. Yeah, no, and of course in the States they do release films in the summer that yeah. are going to be Oscar contenders. I don't know why here we, we do this, but you're absolutely right about Judy. And I think the thing about Judy is it's a film that didn't particularly open brilliantly, mm -hmm. but that audience just takes a little time and the word was good and it continues to find an audience. And, um, I mean, the joke is a different kettle of fish altogether, but I, I think, again, like we did with The Wife, like has happened with Judy, you have to be a bit more imaginative, I think, and think maybe, well, a film can get that Oscar buzz and the BAFTA buzz. You don't have to release it in in a, a time when really there's four films films a week coming out that that people want to see. Uh, and presumably when you chose the September 2018 release date for The Wife, the narrative about around Glenn Close and the fact that it might finally be her year to win her first Oscar had was already in place, so you were yeah. able to capitalise on that. Well, they released it in June. In, in the uh, US. Yeah, in the yeah. US. So, it, it, it again, it, it just does say to you that we could release films. I mean, we're we're much more prey to the weather here, though, and and that is a bit of a problem. In that the summer is the time for blockbusters because the audience tends to want to be at the pub or in barbecuing or not going to the cinemas and not really aware that cinemas now do actually have air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then looking at uh, one of the other key categories, which is now called the International Feature Category, previously the Foreign Language Film Category for the Oscars, um, you, of course, have some uh, some contenders on your slate quite regularly now. Women at War, uh, which you released in May 2019, was Iceland's entry last year, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think so, yes. And Manos is Colombia's submission this year, which you released uh, last week yeah. uh, in the UK. Um, what, what are the thinking, what's the thinking that goes into dating those particular titles where you put them? Um, certainly you do not have uppermost in your mind we've got to get an award because foreign language is a tough 
uh, genre or, the, you know, it's tough to release foreign language films in the UK and essentially you're just trying to do the best job you possibly can by that film and get audiences in. So I think we knew that Monos had a great following. We knew the crits were going to be very positive about the film, but it stands on its own merit. And so we're, we see what generates from the release, not about the release we have to do it as an awards contender. What we have to do is get people in to see this very fine film. That's what we have to do. The Oscars are quite specific in terms of their eligibility for any film, so you have to have some sort of release in the actual calendar year. BAFTA has a slightly different process, particularly for um, foreign language films. Charles, could you tell us a little bit about that and how that's changed? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, you've, you had to release your films before the BAFTA ceremony in order to qualify. I mean, there used to be some ambiguous flexibility. Amb- and very you took, ambiguous. Took, I think you took advantage of that with Capanoa yeah, last, last year, which, re- which released after the ceremony was still eligible. This year, they formalised the flexibility and they're offering you up to four weeks um, after the ceremony for, for a foreign language film, which I think is a brilliant innovation because actually what always used to happen were was that, I mean, particularly Curzon Artificial Eye often used to release very strong foreign language films in March and April after the Oscar dust had settled and mm-hmm. where they could get the screens and get the audiences. But now, I mean, for example, they're releasing Parasite on Feb 7 which is after the BAFTA ceremony. And um, even though it will be eligible in other categories, potentially, director, you know, best picture, yeah, editing, yeah. I mean, who knows, um, they they can release it after the ceremony and it will still qualify, which I think is, is great news for it's, everybody. It, it is. It's an important important that BAFTA did this, I think, given the struggle people have with foreign language titles these days and getting people to see something a little bit different than the the sort of Hollywood fodder. And getting the screens. And getting the screens, absolutely. That's uh, more than anything else. As I said, we're, we're all now sort of having to play films in more than one screen and I can just see a lot of cinemas in December just playing Cats and Star Wars. I think for foreign language films, it makes sense but I do remember that year when Julianne Moore won Best Actress for Still Alice even though the film didn't come out till several weeks after the BAFTA ceremony and um, that, that must perplex audiences surely yeah, you know, yeah. that, those sort of situations happen that was the year where they went back to the old way of qualifying it by releasing it in you know some cinemas for I think oh in those days you only had to play in one cinema for a week and I think they played yeah. it in Ripon or something like yeah. that um, and that led to a clamping down on what was seen as a bit of an abuse of the spirit of the, the there was system. A, there was back in the day quite a lot of uh, Oscar films playing at uh, in Ambleside for a week, one show a day or something like that, wasn't it? It was quite funny, but they did get wise to that. <laughs> so we have mentioned Parasite, Bong Joon-ho's film, which uh, won the Palme d'Or in Cannes. Not only looks like a serious contender, but actually seems like it has so much momentum behind it. But of course, there are other se- several other contenders out there. I mean, what do we think about the foreign language race this year in terms of how it's shaping up? I mean, I'd love to say Monos. I think Monos is a fantastic film and I hope it has a shot at it. But Parasite does seem to have a, a momentum behind it in a way that no other film. Well, with my heart, I'm saying Monos as well. I mean, I'm a massive team, team Monos person. I think more realistically, Pain and Glory by Pedro Almodovar, I think is a very, very likely nominee. I think that the French film Les Miserables by, is it, 
Largely. Thank you for that pronunciation tip. I think that's very strongly favoured. I've seen the German film System Crasher, which I think is very good. It's maybe a little bit tough for the Oscar voters in the foreign chapter. Um, Then we've got the Marco Bellocchio film, The Traitor from Italy. I think there's quite a lot of heat on that. Atlantic's uh, Matti Diop, which was in Cannes from Senegal. You know, I think that's an interesting film. I don't know whether it will totally play to the Oscar voters. Uh, I think it's probably a bit too too much for Oscar voters, that one. I, I think it's a remarkable film, but uh, I think probably it's just a little bit beyond those Oscar old Oscar voters. And then the Swedish film, which is And Then We Danced, which is actually set in Georgia, and it's a very, very sweet gay love story, which I think it's kind of pressing a few political buttons, and it's not a kind of difficult, tough you know, queer movie, it's a very accessible, warm-hearted film, which I think would play well to the voters. And the US Foreign Language Committee, in terms of the Oscar um, submissions, does an interesting thing where they select their 10-strong long list before the sort of five-strong shortlist is announced with the nominations. And of those 10 films, it's now, it used to be nine, but it's now 10 this year, uh, three are selected by a committee. So they're able to pick interesting other titles to add to the list. Well, I think that automatically has raised Monas' chances yeah. because even if the voters uh, in their infinite lack of wisdom fail to to kind of pick it, I'd have thought that the committee would, would definitely pick it. One would hope so. It's such a remarkable film um, and we're just finding people are sort of coming out of the cinema unable to speak because they haven't seen anything like it. It feels a bit of a long shot, but I really hope that people do get behind it because I think as a director and as a piece of work, it's extraordinary. And we touched on this a little bit, but the ability of some foreign language films to transcend outside of that yeah. category. Well, I think one of the key the key issues here is that um, in the way the way the nominations work, directors nominate directors, cinematographers nominate cinematographers, editors nominate editors. So I think that really does give movies like Parasite a real advantage in those categories because you're really having experts nominate when it actually comes to picking the winners i think it's a it's a whole different question because then the whole academy piles in yeah and also do we think the growth of the academy's own international membership is is feeding into that a little bit of their they've made a concerted effort the last two or three years to really build up their international membership yeah that could be a factor i think there's probably a long way to go yet but you're right i think that that could start to change things for the better and I also think as a result, perhaps unintended consequence of that, they're getting a more younger voters as well, because by so rapidly expanding the voting academy in a bid for diversity, they've actually picked up a lot more young... young. I mean, I was at the uh, American Academy party during the London Film Festival, and a lot of the people there who were the first-time Academy members were definitely a more youthful cohort. Not 70. <laughs> Do we think that younger membership, does that... Do we think help with more commercial films or where do we think that would be an advantage? In what way? Yeah. Maybe for a film like Joker, might that have a... Well, have yeah, a sort of... that, that's, that is true. That is true. It might help Joker. It might help, you know, Once Upon a Jojo Time. Jojo Rabbit, perhaps? Once, or... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I, I think Jojo Rabbit plays quite old, actually, oh, yeah. myself. Um, I've seen it twice now and it uh, does seem to me that it plays slightly older and what do we think are the some of the other leading contenders in these big categories? If we're looking at Best Picture, we've obviously mentioned Jojo Rabbit. There's obviously the very big Netflix titles that are in play this year, so The Irishman, Marriage Story. What are the films that you maybe have both seen that you think are, are your tips to watch? Personally, I, I 
think for me the one that I'm most excited about, and I'm sure it's going to get a nomination, is Little Women, and I think Greta Gerwig will get a nomination. Um, for director, for, for director, yeah, for yeah. director yeah. without any da- and screenplay. Yeah. It will be good to see that in there. But Tarantino, obviously, is going to be right up there. The Joker's going to be right up there. 1917. Which is the Sam Mendes, yeah, First Sam World War Mendes film. film. Yeah. I mean, people are mentioning the Malik hidden life, but I'm not sure. It didn't feel like it came out of Cannes with a lot of heat. Again, it could be a case of spend, spend, spend <laughs> to uh, get it out there. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm of the t- of the two big Netflix movies. I'm I'm definitely sort of more hopeful for Marriage Story because I just think it's a phenomenal film. But obviously, The Irishman. A lot of people love that movie. Um, I agree with Claire on the Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think is is great, and it's I mean it's good to see commercial movies like that and Joker sort of competing with the more you know art house films. Um, we haven't mentioned another more commercial film, which is the James Mangold movie, which is Le Mans '66, Ford versus Ferrari. Mm. And I wonder whether you know we've already ticked a couple of commercial boxes with Joker and the Tarantino. Whether the kind of the people with a more mainstream taste. There won't be enough of them to go round. I mean, I loved Bombshell, which is Jay Roach's movie about Fox News, which I think is smart, but really entertaining. Um, I agree on Little Women. I think it's a very good film. And there aren't that many films that are really, really driven by female performances. Yeah, but it is a very sort of male skew this year, I think. And talking of male skew, I mean, the Safdie Brothers' uh, Uncut Gems is quite a male movie. And even, you know, The Two Popes, which, you know, will appeal, I think, very much to, you know, to both genders. The main characters are uh, unambiguously male, played by um, uh, Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, and directed by Fernando Moreas, yes. great Brazilian filmmaker. Yeah, and, and also a Netflix title. Another Netflix, another Netflix as, title. As is a safety. So brother. where are they going to spend all their money? Is the question. <laughs> How are they going to this year? Did they spend forty million last year? Is this true? It was true? rumored. I yeah. mean, it was certainly in eight figures. Yeah, and yeah. who knows? It... So have they got that money to spend this year on all these titles? This I kind of feel by. Noah Baumbach and Martin Scorsese will get the most love. From from them, um, but the other two, you know, will be in the mix, and I think maybe they can push Jonathan Price in actor for the two popes, and we'll see what happens with Uncut Gems. It's quite a strong year though for actors. It is. Um, it is. Yeah. Really, it feels more so for actors than it does for at the actress. Award. I mean, I don't know if Sony have decided yet whether Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt would go up against each other in the Best Actor category, or would they split that? They often do that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, I always Brad assumed it would supporting. be Brad supporting. I'd always had that in my head, but uh, not that it's absolutely deserved, but it it's, sort of has always been that way. It's not that it's deserved, but I think I think they'd be crazy to do it differently because mm. otherwise they really do risk cancelling each other out. And I think maybe Brad has more chance because I think supporting might be not quite as competitive and whenever you have someone who is basically doing a lead performance that's running in supporting I think they have an automatic advantage over Mm. people with less screen time but he is also great in the film yeah but I do think that that's a much um, you know Joaquin Phoenix is obviously the front runner Um, but yeah I mean actually you've got Joaquin and you've got Adam Driver for Marriage Story you've got Leonardo DiCaprio you've got Robert De Niro that's a very heavyweight, you know, list of actors. So in terms of 
you know, who might get that fifth spot. It is quite it's William Defoe for me. The lighthouse, I think William. Yeah, I think William Defoe is absolutely stunning in that film, and poor old Robert Patterson desperately trying to keep up with him, but uh, he just about does it actually, Patterson. But I think William Defoe is so fantastic. I I would um, I would put him right in there. Does Jojo Rabbit have any best actor contenders? Yeah, well, I mean, the kid uh, who is uh, Roman Griffin Davis is actually quite kind of favoured. And I think in any other year he would have a real shot. But I do wonder whether he's going to go the distance. Maybe more, maybe more because he's British. Maybe BAFTA will sort of give him more attention. I can't say, really. I think it's such a heavyweight year that it's going to be one of the people that we've talked about. It felt like with Jojo Rabbit, maybe Thomas and Mackenzie was the was the as a supporting actress was yeah. the person who was more being talked about in, in for that film. Yeah, I yeah. would agree. Yeah. I think she stands a chance. It's a wonderful performance, but um, she stands out for me in Jojo Rabbit. And then Scarlett Johansson, of course, is in Jojo Rabbit too. But I think the performance that she's being touted for is Marriage Story because apparently yeah. she's absolutely fantastic in the film. I think she is. I think she's really good. And it's uh, what I find interesting is that from. From, from the very beginning of this awards race, we've been told Renee Zellweger is fantastic in Judy and she is, as Judy Garland, and she is going to win. And I just kind of feel not so fast, you know. Well... I mean, she, is, she is very good, but Scarlett is great. Saoirse yeah. is great in Little Women. Yeah. And I think Charlize is great in Bombshell. So I really don't think it's a one-horse race. Well, also, having been through this with the wife and Glenn Close, who... In, in my view, she should have got it simply because Olivia Coleman has plenty of years ahead of her. And I think it would have been great for Glenn, who's missed out so many times. But she was always talked about as the front runner and, and then she didn't get it. So I think with Rennie, I think she's got a chance, but I don't think it's sewn up. Do you have any theories about the Glenn Close why she didn't win? Because it was it just felt so almost predestined in a way. That I she think was win. I can only imagine that everybody thought, well, I won't vote for her because she's going to win. I, I I can only think it would be that because she worked very hard. She was very, um, I mean, for us, she worked very hard. She came over and she was a real professional, did everything we could ask of her, a proper movie star, but she did her stuff. And I think it was because everybody just thought, well, we won't vote, we'll vote for someone else because she has got it all tied up. But I also wonder whether it sometimes helps if you are in a film that is getting multiple nominations mm-hmm. and you look at yeah. your ballot and you go well I'm not going to vote the favourite best picture because I really like Roma or Green Book or whatever and I'm not I'm, I'm going to vote you know Alfonso Cuarón in director oh I know that's where I can give that film a big tick right there is in mm-hmm. best actress and whereas in the case of The Wife you didn't have the advantage yeah. of that so I think that that might have played a factor. No, that's that's also a very good point, Charles. Any other actress contenders you want to flag up or that we're, we haven't what, discussed? Yeah. What about Aquafina? Ah, Aquafina, yeah. With the farewell. In the farewell. Yeah. yeah. I think she stands a really good chance. Yeah, I think this summer there were two kind of American independent movies that broke through at the US box office. One was The Farewell, Lulu Wang's movie, and the other one was The Peanut Butter Falcon, which is another kind of warm-hearted crowd pleaser. In terms of which of those two films is more likely to win at awards, I do think The Farewell stands more chance. And I think um, Aquafina's performance is really great in the movie. 
But another film that I really like, and I just saw it this week, is Queen and Slim um, with Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner-Smith. And, you know, I think they're both great, but I think Jodie Turner-Smith has probably more chance of being nominated just because it's, I can see, uh, you know, that little spot that might be open in the Best Actress race. Interesting. And then looking at director, we have mentioned Tarantino, obviously. We mentioned Scorsese. Do we think Taika Waititi is in the frame for Jojo Rabbit? Do we think Noam Baumbach is in the frame for Marriage Story? We've also mentioned Greta Gerwig as obviously a sort of strong female directing contender. Well, I think all those names you've mentioned, Sam Mendes, may well go in there as well. Yeah, there's a lot of contenders again. And one that you haven't mentioned, I think, is Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, who I think really, you know, really could could land a nomination. And I see, in fact, one of the lists I'm looking at, they've literally got him in number one position above Quentin Tarantino. Has Quentin ever won Best Director? I know he's won Screenplay. I don't think he has. No, I don't think he has. As you said, I think Screenplay, but he's not... I'm sure he'd like it, and I'm sure he'll work very hard. (laughs) And Scorsese has won Best Director, but arguably for a film he shouldn't have won Best Director for. Was that The Departed? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Does it feel like wider open race at this stage than it did last year? Do we feel... Because already at this stage, Roma was really kind of had a lot of heat on it. Uh, and then obviously Green Book came in one best picture. But the talk around Roma was so overwhelming already. Yeah, it does feel more open this year. Uh, the, again, it's a bit like how we started off the conversation. And there's a lot of great movies out there that have chances and more so than last year, I think. And also, of course, Netflix were spending a lot of money last year. They, they'd they already sort of decided that's what they were going to do. And so that started very early doors, that campaign. I think the Toronto Film Festival audience prize has sort of thrown a little bit of a firecracker into the mix because in the years when movies like Slumdog Millionaire and The King's Speech kind of won that prize, you kind of went, yeah, I can really see that's a Best Picture winner right there. But when Jojo Rabbit won, I I was thinking, yeah, this is a comedy in which a boy is a fan of Adolf Hitler, you know, and has an imaginary friend of Adolf Hitler. It doesn't seem like the obvious, it's just going to ride that train all the way through to a Best Picture win. That has definitely introduced a kind of almost slightly random element into the mix. Well, I think it's this thing, isn't it, that we are in the business of trying to predict things. And at the end of the day, the audience are the ones that decide. And In terms of box office? In ter- but I think then box office leads to attention, right. yeah. leads to other things. And so therefore, I agree with you about Jojo Rabbit, because... Frankly, a lot of the crits were great for the film, but it has started to gain a momentum that might be unstoppable. But there is a, there is also a backlash. I mean, inevitably, some of the critics didn't like it from the beginning. On social media, you know, some of the comments that I'm reading are really kind of quite extreme in their antipathy to the film. I've heard war crimes mentioned. Um, Wow. <laughs> it's, 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 well, this is what, uh, again, it's the polarisation, the world of polarisation that we live in now, where everything is either great or 
terrible and there's not let's have a discussion about the plus points the minus points what the film's trying to say etc it's all become very extreme and claire is the feedback from your audiences at picture house cinemas that they're as excited about award season as we are or is this more of an industry thing <laughs> i think it's more of an industry thing but you know what i'm going to give you a counter example because okay. i was actually in hackney picture house a couple of years ago in january watching T2 train spotting, And bizarrely, right next to me were about five people who were sitting around going through every single awards movie, like one by one, and discussing them and working out when they were going to see them. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is like an advertisement for, <laughs> for, for the kind of cineast picture house audience. Like, has, this, has someone paid them to like, sit, sit next to me? Well, we uh, look, we just have a fantastic audiences <laughs> that care about these things. But I think generally... People just want to see a film because they think it's great and they've heard about it and they've read the reviews or they've seen the advertising. I mean, that brings us on to does awards make a difference? And I would say that awards can make a difference. There is a bump. Mm -hmm. But generally, if you look at awards before the Oscars, the only one I think that carries any sort of weight these days is the Palm d'Or. I don't think yeah. Venice or Berlin carries much weight. And I do think the Oscars carry weight. So once the awards are announced and the fever begins, but I think it begins much later on for audiences than it does for us who get very excited about it or completely stressed out with how many films we're going to have to shoehorn in to the cinemas. But I do think people look forward to a bit of an annual binge in January where they know that there's going to be an awful lot of quality films and they kind of, you know, there were people who were literally sort of clearing space in their diary thinking, yeah. I'm going to try and see a movie every week, which which not many people do year-round. Yes. yes, It probably used to be easier to quantify that post kind of award boost because of the home entertainment, which of course mm. no longer is as important as it used to be. However, that doesn't seem to stop the studios or Netflix spending millions of dollars on these campaigns. It's still a incredibly important thing for them to win, to win awards. Yeah, it, it is, but it is about the, the fact more than anything else. I mean, it affects the box office, but it, for Fox, Fox always wanted to have those award winners and to do good campaigns because part of it is also about getting the directors to commit to making films with those studios etc so the awards have lots of sort of outcomes it's not just about box office i mean just focusing on the box office for one moment i think that from those that sort of first week of january where you get the golden globe ceremony and you get the bafta nominations all the way through to the oscar ceremony certainly in the uk that is a fantastic period in which to earn money and it, i mean a win is if you're a winner <laughs> <laughs> but, but just by being nominated mm. in that if you've got multiple nominations and you've got a lot of buzz around your movie, you can bank a lot of money. If you then win, then that's great. You can squeeze a little bit extra out of it. But for a company like Netflix, I mean, it's much less clear what their kind of commercial upside is. Are they going to drive subscription revenue by release, by having movies like The Irishman and Marriage Story? I mean, I think season three of The Crown is is much more likely to be encouraging people to subscribe. Well, I think if you look, there was an article in the newspaper a couple of weeks ago, Netflix, who are very, um, don't like their uh, numbers being reported at all, saying that actually films like Roma did not get 
fantastic viewing figures. So there has to come a point where they think, what is the value in this? I mean, the Irishman's obviously yeah. a different case. I think it's a, diff- it's a different case. Um, Still with- a TV movie, though, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, they spent more money making The Irishman than they did for an entire season of The Crown, right? I mean, Probably all uh, series I- put together. <laughs> Thank you, Claire and Charles, for your invigorating insights into the startup award season. It's all to play for at this stage, and will be interesting to see how the race shifts in the coming weeks. We'll be following the race throughout in this series of Screen International podcasts, as well as interviewing some of the contenders along the way. Stay tuned and head to ScreenDaily.com to keep up with our podcasts. The Screen International podcast is a PPM production. The producer is Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. That's all for now. See you next time.